0: Welcome to the Silver Caduceus Association podcast, where we take a break to explore how medical service corps officers shape the story of the Army. This is our story, and I'm your host, Dave Paramore. Let's get started. Okay, folks. Uh, good afternoon. I guess good morning. Which, whatever time you're listening, it's uh, a pleasure to have you again at the Silver Caduceus Association podcast and. Happy New Year to everyone! Uh, today we're joined by Colonel John Lee. Colonel Lee, welcome. Well, thank you, Dave. This
1: is a great uh, time to do this, and and I really appreciate you inviting me to do this podcast.
0: Yeah, it's just great to have you. I, um, you know, you and I have something in common. We're in these uh, what we call low density AOCs. I used to joke that. Uh, I was the consultant for the 70 Deltas, and and there were more two-star generals in the army than there were 70 Deltas. I think there were 95 of us on the books, but um, you're the 70 Charlie consultant. And so I I guess uh, maybe for our listeners who don't know, most of them do, but just a a refresher for all of us, what is a 70 Charlie?
1: Well, thanks, Dave. Thanks for letting me have this opportunity to explain what a 70 Charlie really uh, is all about. 70 Charlie is, first of all, the health service comptroller, which is equivalent to a controller at the industry level. So what we do is literally we manage and we we resource and we are informing our commanders on all the hospital resources. So everything from collection, yes, collections, to actual budget and finance and accounting and audit are fall all fall under the comptroller?
0: Yeah, thanks. Thanks for that. That's uh, very succinct and helpful. So, um, again, we uh, we think of you all as the chief financial officer. Is that does that a fair assessment?
1: Yes. So we we do have that title as a chief financial officer, and that's exactly what we do because we actually mimic uh, very closely what what the industry CFO does uh, in in the hospitals.
0: Yeah, yeah, fantastic. Um, yeah, that's great. I, um, you know, we've certainly have. We could probably tell war stories all day long, but just in the limited time that we have, um, one of the hot button questions we get from our listeners is to kind of talk about um, what's uh, very present in our world today, and that's uh, the the COVID nineteen pandemic and. Uh, many of the the folks uh, reach out to me and ask, "Hey, what's going on in Army Medicine, and what you know? How is Army Medicine supporting uh, the pandemic uh, response? And you know, maybe maybe uh, from your perspective as a comptroller and seventy Charlie consultant, what um, you know? How is Army me- Medicine, and maybe more specifically, seventy Charlies, how have you guys been involved in uh, pandemic support?"
1: Well, thanks, Dave, for asking that question because this COVID was something that no one really anticipated. And we really didn't know how this was going to pan out, especially for the army medicine. Uh, we come to find out that this was actually all about hospitals and finances uh, it's because a couple of things happened. And this is, you never know when, when lightning strikes and you are called on to, to act. So it was a slow rolling thunder in the beginning. We kind of knew that this COVID was coming, but we didn't know what the extent of the impact was. And then when the balloon hit, and basically I, I remember the president clearly saying, this is a war on on this virus. And at that point, I knew that we we're going to be up in arms and we we're going to be working uh, pretty much past nights, 24-7 until we could figure out how to get all the resources and supplies. So how it all panned out for the comptrollers, uh, we were actually one of the first uh, front liners with, with the uh, doctors. And so what happened was uh, testing. We, we didn't know how to get these test kits because everybody was pretty much looking for test kits and ventilators, right? The ventilators was the first in, first in line. And if you ever went to a Walmart during a crisis, uh, I believe we all had issues with toilet papers and everything else. That's exactly what it was. And even even in DOD, everybody was out there trying to grab as much resources as possible. And basically, if you didn't have the money to purchase these things as they come in, you are pretty much uh, out of luck. And so I kind of attribute uh, to all my comptrollers across the entire healthcare system to go ahead and just procure all the ventilators you can get your hands on and we we will ensure that we have the funds coming in. And so my job was, was to uh, work with DOD directly and basically all those bureaucratic, uh, I guess, procurement activities was really cut down to a couple emails to get these things approved. So that's how fast things moved. And, and if, you, if you were not technically competent or you weren't ready to understand how the, how the actual funds moved within the DOD system, not just the army, but DOD system, you were pretty much last in line to get all these supplies. And what it highlighted was how important financial resource managers are. In, in, in Literally, I think 48 hours, we were able to ping all our, all our CFOs across the entire globe asking what are the rec- resource requirements, and we did some very quick analysis on what we need, including PPE. When I say PPE, it's a protective uh, equipment, such as masks, gowns, and et cetera. And when we started doing the math, th- this is where the resources came, resource managers came in. We, we took all the, all the beneficiaries out there that would require, require support, and then we calculated how much supply that's already in the system. Then we calculated how many people we've seen per day, and then we calculated what, what the casualty rate was based on the information that we had. And then we came up with some estimates, and that estimates, uh, we, we had over 400-some uh, million dollars in, in requirements right off the bat. I mean, literally in 48 hours, we were able to come, figure that out. And when we started executing, uh, we we were hitting marks. And and at the end of the day, because of the technical competence of the medical service corps comptrollers, we were able to go within about 10% delta of what we estimated without even knowing what the true uh, requirement really was going to be because pandemic could have hit all kinds of ways, right? We could have had surges all over the place. and And the bottom line is, is our technical competence as medical service officers have put this together expediently, but with very concise and precise estimates. And that, that is something that we could we could go back and, and take a look at and how how much value that MSC officers could bring to the table, because this was not just the controls, but this was also uh, in, in conjunction with, of course, the logisticians and, and as well, the administrators, the hospital administrators, right. Uh, and it, right. It, it was very fast.
0: Yeah. It, it, it's just, I hear it, you know, it's like, and that's amazing insight that you've shared just uh, for our listening audience. I, I guess just to kind of dovetail on, on your thread there, uh, you know, folks are eager and obviously uh, folks like me have been out a number of years and watching the news and, you know, we, we get our, our information and the, what's clear in, in our view now is kind of this, uh, vaccine distribution. And, you know, maybe, um, you know, at a high level, if you wouldn't mind just sharing with our listeners kind of w- where we're at with vaccine distribution from a resource perspective, resource management perspective, or, you know, what's your involvement with, uh, with the vaccine effort.
1: Yeah. So the vaccine itself, it, it, it was, uh, pretty much logistical, uh, I guess, effort and, what we decided was that because uh, we learned our lesson from the initial uh, uh, PPE or the protective equipment distribution, that it was better to procure it at the highest level. So what they did was they um, everybody pitched in what their cost was, and basically what they did was they, they bought it at the highest level, which is the OSD, the Office of Secretary of Defense, uh, ASOL. And so they they pretty much had all the procurement done and then an AMC, the Army Material Command for the Army side was part of the distribution plan on on moving these vaccines. So one of the one of the biggest issues was uh where we come in was refrigeration. Uh so one of the technical piece of these vaccines was that it required refrigeration and and you could not uh leave it out for a very long time. So our capacity was over overwhelmed because we were used to just or we had the bandwidth for normal flu season vaccine uh, refrigerations. And so when you're looking at literally trying to get the entire DOD vaccinated, that's a lot of vaccines. So right now we are working on ensuring that we got the right amount of refrigeration to keep these vaccines alive.
0: Yeah. Uh, just again, a lot of moving parts there, and you you alluded to earlier, and it's uh, it's certainly evident uh, here in this conversation the value of medical service corps officers. I, you know, we uh, we grew up um, kind of in a very big support role, and uh, the certain uh, deployments that we were on in the in the '90s and early 2000s, of course, other listeners back to Vietnam and Korean War and others. But um, you, you kind of alluded to the value of the medical service corps officer and thought maybe if you could just share a little bit, um, you know, for our active duty, younger active duty audience, um, uh, maybe uh, to the extent that, um, you know, you can talk about the, the value um, today that the Army sees in Medical Service Corps and maybe a little bit of a, a discussion about the, you know, the future of our captains and majors and um, the value that they have in our Army. Um, uh, just kind of if you would talk a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, so I would have to go back to a little bit in time. And so I actually was able to uh, deploy to Iraq. And one of the things that I seen where where MSC Corps officers uh, bring incredible value is in patient movement and, and combating non battle, uh, non battle disease. And where all these metrics, where all these analysis that had to be done is where we really put the actual stamp on why MSCs exist. And what I'm saying that is, is this, when we had uh, in the back in the uh, first war, War II and World War I, our numbers of survivability rate was really low. When we left Iraq, because, because of the competence of all the MSC officers, including PAD officers, Deltas, and you name them, we had over 96 survive, 96% ninety six survivability rate. That is just unreal. So the minute, literally, within the golden hour, if, if we could get to a patient, they had a 96% survivability. And that was exactly contributed to the MSE core because of our competence in, in actually moving patients administratively, right? Whether it's resources, getting getting calls for the, to, for the supplies, et cetera. And, and I tell you, you cannot replicate that with any other core at this point because all the all the years of what the service have put in training for for our MSCs is is unreal. Uh, so I don't know if if you've been told but one of the things that the MSC does is is we bring a lot of education and a lot of technical competence uh for for the core. So that's why we are able to Bring incredible value in these kind of situations, and and same thing with with what's going on right now. I mean, with COVID, with with vaccines. I mean, these these folks out there, the MSC cores, are very technically competent because of all the training they receive, and we don't we don't we don't hide the fact that, that multiple degrees on some of these uh, comptrollers or even even deltas. Uh, these are these are some of the things that I think will play real well for those young uh, active duty officers who are trying to get into the MSC Corps.
0: Yeah, yeah, thanks for that. Um, Kind of just to transition a little bit into that value and an organization like the Silver Caduceus Association, Uh, maybe if you maybe share some of um, your experience, uh, not only on active duty and then within the AOCs, but how uh, a supporting organization like the SCA can help uh, even active duty officers. Uh, you know, maybe if you could talk a little bit about that.
1: So, I think the Silver Caduce Society is is an incredible value add for the Medical Service Corps officers, especially because back in the old days we used to have uh, we used to have like things like old club where we could get together and and share ideas and and you know bring up the spirits. But now that, you know, we are more individual and, and very technology savvy world. We don't have too many forms where we could get together physically. So these silver society, silver Caduceus society brings, brings together all the officers, uh, in, in one place where they could share ideas and, and kind of elevate each other's, uh, I guess, AOCs and, and, and also their skill sets. And I think the, they, this uh, form will bring incredible value for those younger soldiers who didn't have the chance to have those kind of uh, platforms like we did in the past. So I think this this is more important than ever be, ever before.
0: Yeah, great. Appreciate that feedback. Um, John, maybe just to close, what's been, maybe you have a couple highlights of your own career. What, what do you look back on as a Medical Service Corps officer and you're uh, perhaps the most proud of?
1: Yes. So you never know where life takes you is is how I want to start this conversation, because I was uh, first uh, introduced to comptrollership uh, as a lieutenant uh, back in uh, Fort Drum. I didn't know what comptrollers did. I didn't understand what comptrollers did. And someone just said, I think you have a knack for math. And I was like, well, I, I sort of do. And so that took me on a whole new journey and going from TONE unit to TDA opened my eyes because uh, from TDA, when I say TDA, when I, the hospital settings, I, I really didn't know how much professionalism that was involved with being a comptroller. So my life took a whole new role, a whole new life when I saw how much education, how much technical competence is required and and the, t- and the quality of soldiers and, and the type of, of soldiers that I met throughout my life, and at the end of the day, you could have all kinds of jobs, all kinds of uh, locations, but the one thing that's common in all of, in all of those jobs and places, and that is the people that you work with, that you work around with, and the people that support you and and the people that that you support and there's no other better I, I would even say medical service corps in itself, in, in its entirety, that that you working with a bunch of professionals that really care about their jobs, that really are uh, uh, passionate about what they do is, is what I would like to say. And some of the things that I, I kind of seen throughout my career is, you know, in, in the civilian world, you had to qualify for jobs before you get in, so you have a lot of interviews, and and the first thing I ask you is, hey, what experience have you had in order to take this job? Well, one thing that the Army and, and the Medical Service Corps brings to you is you're, not, you're, you're never qualified for the job you're about to have. So I was blessed with having the ability to jump into jobs two grades higher than myself. First thing was that I came out of Iraq, and I was looking for a job, and they said, well, you know what? I think you could handle Walter Reed. And I was like, okay, I, all right, I'll, I'll try Walter Reed. And what happened was a CFO that's supposed to take over, uh, who's supposed to be the uh, CFO for the Walter Reed, uh, decided he wanted to do something else, and and then and I was a I was a baby major, taking the most complex account, and next thing I know, uh, they titled me the CFO, and I'm like, wow, so. The bottom line is, I, I think there's no other better calling and no better opportunities uh, out there than than being with the Medical Service Corps, you know, or Seven Charlie, Seven Delta, Seven Alpha, because you never know where life will take you. But you, once you get that position, though, you know, you always want to do your best. But you don't get these opportunities, I don't think, in the civilian world. And and uh, it's never it's never been dull.
0: Yeah, well, <laughs> concur that it's <laughs> it's never. Never dull, for sure. So, uh, well, John, listen, it's really been a pleasure. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, your stories today are really going to resonate and uh, certainly very informative to us now who have transitioned. And uh, we really look forward to hearing more from the active duty side in these podcasts. So um, uh, thanks for joining us today, John. Uh, best of luck to you as uh, as you continue in your career. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. You bet. Um, all right, folks, well, listen. You can always uh, uh, connect with us online, uh, silvercaduceusassociation.org. And um, for the podcast, wherever you get your podcasts, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, uh, make sure that, uh, that, that uh, you subscribe. And uh, we look forward to talking to you all soon for our next episode. Have a great day, everyone. For more information or to listen to other episodes, please visit silvercaduceusassociation.org.